please have a seat. I'll invite you to take a copy of the scripture, either in written or app form. Turn to John chapter 1. We're continuing our uh, work through the gospel of Jesus according to John. John, Jesus' best friend on this earth, closest disciple, wrote in a biography of Jesus, witnesses about Jesus to us all these years later. And we are in John chapter 1, verse 19. It's a, an account of a man named John. It's a different John than the one who wrote this. This is John the Baptist. So I'll try to, to, today, as I'm referring to John's, try to keep our Johns separate. We have John the author, and we have John the Baptist, all right? And so we're going to be mostly talking about what John the author says about John the Baptist today, and see what we can learn um, today from this man named John the Baptizer. John uh, chapter 1, verse 19. We'll read it through, and then I'll do a bit of intro, and, and then we'll look at this passage um, in some detail. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So there's this delegation that's come, and now they've left, presumably. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. This is God's word to us this morning. All right, here we go. So as we study church history, so as we look at um, how the church of Jesus has grown throughout history, throughout the last 2,000 or so years, we can see that Christianity always spreads in a region in, in very similar ways. It's the same way that 
our, as we pray that this year that the gospel of Jesus would overtake Niagara in a way in which it has never done before, that we'd see a great turning back to God, that we see many people come to faith in Jesus, it's the same way that it would happen. We sometimes think, you know, we live in such hard soil. I hardly imagine that the gospel can penetrate the Niagara region in a day in age like ours, but it was certainly not any harder than the first century Roman Empire in which the Christianity exploded. But the stages in which Christianity spreads in a region, almost always, there's the first stage where the quality, there's something about the quality of life of followers of Jesus that's attractive to people who don't follow Jesus. There's the quality of life of Christians is attractive in some way. Whether that's, you know, um, a, a peace that is exuded in times of difficulty and suffering. That, that's inexplicable. And, and someone says, I need that kind of peace. There's, there's something about the quality of life that's attractive. Or whether maybe it's a, a church community that um, is incredibly generous and, 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 and liberal with, with sharing their, their resources for those who are poor and those who are sick. And yet still maintain this, you know conservative um, values of, of morality, this combination of, 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 of virtues that's, that's unique. And, and, and a watching world says, wow, that's, that's amazing. Or, or a watching world looks at a church and says, wow, look at how they love one another. This, this community that's very supportive and loving of each other. It's attractive. Maybe there's... Um, it's, it's just known that this church community is for the good of the city, of the good of the region in which they live, and, 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 and they're adding um, and contributing to the flourishing of the community. Or maybe God is showing himself in great acts of power. But there's, there's something of the quality of life of Christians that becomes attractive. And so uh, people who are not believers in Jesus begin to... Um, Ask questions and begin to um, consider what it is that um, what it is that makes these people different, and how can I have what they have? But when they get close, the witness of Christians that though that these people were attracted by a lifestyle, by a quality of life, when they get close, they find out that Christianity isn't about a lifestyle, but it's about a person. That Christianity isn't a social program. It isn't a code of morality. It's not even a lifestyle, but it's about Jesus. And so while people are attracted by the lives, the lifestyle of Christians, the witness of Christians is that it's not about their lifestyle, but it's about Jesus. It's about who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so the witness of Christians is a call to faith in Christ, not a, not a call to embrace the lifestyle that I have embraced, but a call to embrace faith in Christ, um, faith, embrace faith in Jesus, and that he then produces this inside-out change so that the quality of life that was attractive is actually worked through faith in Jesus. So the witness of Christians is that it's actually not about what makes us attractive. 
it's, it's, it's not about the lifestyle that you find attractive. It's about Jesus and our faith. And it's a pointing away not to ourselves, but to Christ, to Jesus, as the one in whom we're to put our faith and our trust. As Tim Keller would say, he says, the gospel is not the effects of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, when, when, we, when we trust in Jesus, the, it produces change in us. It produces this attractive lifestyle. It produces generous hearts. It produces morality. It produces a peace in the midst of difficulty. It produces a desire to be for the good of others, to love others, and to love those in the, in the faith family. So the gospel has effects, but the good news is not the effects of the gospel. The good news is not the lifestyle, though the gospel does create a lifestyle that's attractive. John the Baptist, I think, is a great example of this kind of a witness. John the Baptist became incredibly popular. He was very attractive. Huge crowds were flocking to see what he was all about. There was something about John the Baptist that was incredibly compelling and attractive and yet John the Baptist continually pointed away from himself and pointed to Jesus. And says, it's not about me. It's not about the way in which I am living. It's not, about, um, it's not about the things that are making me popular. It's all about Jesus. And trust in him. Don't, don't have faith in me and my lifestyle. Have faith in Jesus and who he is and what he's accomplished. That's what... John the Baptist is all about. John the Baptist is presented here in John chapter 1 as a witness. In John 1 verse 7, um, the NIV says, He came as a witness to testify concerning the light. The, the word witness and testify are actually the same Greek word. He came as a witness to bear witness. That's how the ESV puts it. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. His he came as a witness. And actually, that's all throughout this passage we read is, is this word testimony or witness. John the Baptist is here as a witness. This was John's witness when the Jews of Jerusalem sent to priests. He testified, he witnessed, and did not fail to confess, I'm not the Christ. Over and over again, we see John giving, and then John, verse 32, John gave this testimony, this witness of what he saw, what he experienced as the Holy Spirit revealed to him that um, the one in which he sees, he would see the Holy Spirit descend on, that's, that's the Messiah. That's the anointed one. That's, that's the one in which we're going to pin our hopes. And John says, that's what I saw. And so he says, I have seen and I testify, I witness that this is the Son of God. And we know in Acts 1, verse 8, I think I, think I have a slide of that. Acts 1, verse 8, where... Um, Jesus, before he ascends back to heaven, after he's risen from the dead, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you, my disciples, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. We're called, as followers of Jesus, to be witnesses of Jesus. It's a courtroom term. It's a, it's a time with the legal system. It's when a, when a judge or a, a lawyer, if they're presenting their case, they will call a witness to just tell what they know, what they've experienced, what they have seen. Now, the, the job of the witness is not to be the job of the lawyer. The lawyer's job is to put all to, together all of the witnesses to argue a case. The witness's job is just to tell their story, 
just to tell what they know, what they've experienced. Right? So our job is to witness to Jesus, to, to share out of our own experience what we know to be true of him. It's the Holy Spirit's job to put together all of those different witnesses to make a compelling case about who Christ is, who Jesus is, and invite people to faith in him. That's why the Holy Spirit's called the paraclete in Greek, the advocate, the attorney. He's, he's the one who will, get, who will put together all of the witnesses. The witnesses are just part of a process. So let that take some of the pressure off you as a disciple of Jesus. And so as a church family, we want to be all about making disciples all the way from pre-belief to belief in Jesus on to maturity. And that happens through witness. So as we share what we've experienced, not again, witnesses don't tell about other people's experience, right? That's called hearsay. But let it take the, the pressure off you. You're just one witness of a whole community of witnesses. And so we need community in order to reach our neighbors. And so when you hear um, our leaders and us talking about making disciples and reaching out and reaching our neighborhoods um, and reaching those we love with the good news of Jesus, what we, what we don't want you to hear is, oh, what we're saying is you got to bring them to church on Sunday morning. No, we're saying, no, just wit share in genuine ways how Jesus is making a difference in your life. Invite them to your home for dinner. Invite them to know other believers in whom Jesus is making a difference in their lives. So we gather here on Sunday mornings and then scatter out into the world. We gather to worship, to reorient the hearts primarily of believers around Jesus, to love him, to learn of him, to, to um, lift him up into first place in our hearts. We scatter into this world to, to make him known to those who don't know him. And yes, certainly as people come and are become more interested, and as they see the difference he's making, as they're attracted to the lifestyle and your community of faith, certainly they'll probably start coming around here on Sunday mornings. So let's look at John the Baptist's witness. What is it about John the Baptist that we can learn of John the Baptist? He's held up as an example of a witness, right? That's all throughout this chapter. And in fact, the rest of this chapter is about the, the next disciples and how they are witnessing and coming to coming to Jesus and witnessing about him. This marks the, a, a turning point in John's gospel. The first 18 verses that we've talked about are about, is called the prologues. It's John's um, kind of poetic um, introduction of who he believes Jesus to be. And now he's going to illustrate that um, with, the, uh, with the stories. And we know that John wrote his gospel, actually, as his attempt to witness to us. He, he tells us in John chapter 20 why he wrote the, the gospel. He says, I could have written many other things that Jesus did about the, the signs of Christ he, that he, he performed on earth. He says, but these are written. I wrote the signs of Jesus that I did write in order that you may believe and that by believing in him you'd have life in his name. So John here is witnessing to us and he's holding John the Baptist. John the author is witnessing to us and he's holding up John the Baptist as an example of a witness for us. So I want to see three things about John the Baptist. I want to see his view of himself, how he talks about himself. I want to see how he talks about Jesus and the change that that, having that particular view of himself and that particular view of Jesus, that's why John the Baptist is who John the Baptist was, his character. All right, so his view of himself, first of all, John the Baptist, how he saw himself. 
Cyrus's delegation from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they're sent out to, to go investigate John because John is this new thing and he's popular and the religious leaders are a little bit concerned about who John is. And so th they, they are sent to him to figure out who John is. And John is emphatic right from the start. He's saying, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the long-awaited one, the one coming Savior, the one coming King that Israel was waiting for, this promised one, this anointed one that was going to come, this, that the prophets spoke about. He says, I'm not him. I'm not the one. I'm not the one. I'm not the special one. Right? But he says, so they say, well, then, who, who are you? Are you Elijah? Which, which may be a really strange question, right? In fact, maybe you remember in, like, in, in the other, uh, Jesus is kind of thought to be Elijah too, right? Like in, in Mark chapter 8, for example, Jesus asked his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some, of, some people think you're Elijah. What's the deal with Elijah? Why are, why, are, why are the people always thinking, why are the Jews thinking that these prophets or, or Jesus or John the Baptist, why would they think that he's Elijah? Elijah's a prophet in the Old Testament who's been gone for a long time. But Elijah, as you may know, was never, he didn't die a physical death. He was taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire. Um, and the, then the prophet Malachi actually makes a prophecy about Elijah. I think I have it on the, the screen here. Malachi chapter 4 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, says, Before the coming of Messiah, before the coming of the day of the Lord, Elijah's going to come. And so the, the Jews were looking for Elijah to return. Now, John, the Baptist, says, I'm not Elijah. I'm not Elijah. I'm, I'm a guy named John. But the problem, though, is that he kind of is Elijah. If you did your daily readings, we, we've, we've put together a reading plan to take you through the Bible in a year. We handed it out last week. You can pick it up this week if, you, if you're only three days behind. Don't let three days ruin your whole year, all right? Start, start on today's date or make catch up or don't, but, but participate in this. You can pick it up at the entrances. Um, we've got it online as well. You can get it on your app, the Life Journal reading plan. All right, but if you did your readings this week, uh, in Luke chapter 1, our readings were in Luke chapter 1, uh, when the, maybe you, um, this is kind of a Christmas story, so um, Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and he says, in verse 17 of Luke chapter 1, he says, he, speaking of the child, will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. John was, John's dad was said that, um, that John was going to go in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus, if you turn to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew 11, 
Jesus is even a little more clear. He says, I tell you the truth, Matthew 11, verse 11, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He's, he's like, I know you're awesome, but John the Baptist is greater. He says, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and the forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the problem we have here is that John says, no, I'm not Elijah. But Jesus says of John, yeah, he's Elijah. Jesus says, yeah, he is Elijah. Gabriel told Zechariah he would be. Jesus says he is. John is fulfilling a prophecy he's not even aware of, right? He's not even aware that he's fulfilling a prophecy. Leon Morris, look what Leon Morris wrote. He says, John denied being Elijah, but Jesus said he was. Jesus confers on John his true significance. No man is what he himself thinks he is. He is only what Jesus knows him to be. John's fulfilling a prophecy he's not aware of. God's doing more in your life and in your witness than you're even aware of. delegation then asked him, are you the prophet? Capital P, are you the prophet? Prophet like Moses. He's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 18. I got a slide of that here as well. Deuteronomy 18. This is Moses speaking for, to Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you should listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the Jews were looking for this prophet like Moses. Moses stood in the gap between God and the people. The people were afraid of God. And, and God says, yeah, they're rightly so. My glory would kill them if they got too close to me. And so Moses was this mediator, intermediate, in the middle between God and the people of Israel. And God says, promises in Deuteronomy to Moses, through Moses, that he's going to send another prophet. That's Jesus. But the Jews were looking for this other prophet. They weren't sure if he would be the Messiah or not. He was. Um, anyhow, John says, no, I'm not the prophet either. So, so who are you then? And John says, I'm just a voice. And I'm preparing the way for the Lord. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 40. I'm a voice preparing the way for God's coming, for Yahweh, the Lord's coming. I'm just a voice preparing the way. John's self-identity is so wrapped up in Jesus that the only thing that matters to him is who he is in relation to Jesus. Do you see that? The only thing that, the only way in which John can make sense of who he is is how he relates to Jesus. He, he didn't say, well, I'm John, the son of Zechariah, son of Elizabeth, I'm a prophet. He says, no, I'm here to prepare the way for the Lord. That's who I am. My identity is wrapped up in who Jesus is and my relation to him. And then he goes on. He says, I'm so unworthy. 
I'm unworthy of to even untie the thongs of the sandals of Jesus. The one, there's one who's coming after me, the thongs of his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Listen, only a slave could untie the thongs of a sandal. Feet were dirty, right? That's why it's such an amazing thing that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He didn't just take off their sandals. He washed his disciples' feet. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do a slave's job. I'm less worthy than a slave. I'm less worthy than a slave. You say, well, John, why do you have such low self-esteem? What's wrong with you, John? Isn't that an unhealthy view? To have such low self-esteem? Think you're worse than Unworthy, more unworthy than a slave, John? Come on, give yourself some credit. Why such low self-esteem? Well, there's two ways to think you're unworthy. First way is, is you think you're unworthy and you dislike yourself. You hate yourself. You despise yourself. The other way to think you're unworthy is to actually be freed from yourself, to forget yourself. To be, you know, the, the Christian, a healthy humility. This first view of hating yourself is actually destructive, but this second way of thinking you're unworthy is, is really this healthy humility where you actually can forget yourself and think less of yourself, think of yourself less often. You see, we, many of us have what I'd call an inferiority complex and but actually looks humble, but we're, what we're doing is we're just constantly comparing ourselves to others. And it's actually a very self-centered way of living. We're absorbed in ourselves. If we feel bad in comparison, comparing ourselves to others, what do others think of me? How am I measuring up? What do they have compared to what I have? Um, you know, how good-looking are they compared to how good-looking I am? And, and how many friends do they have? And, and, and all of that. And, we're, and, and so what we're doing is we're constantly measuring our self-worth, our identity, based on on others in comparison to others is a very self-centered way of living. That's why we produce, you know, many of us produce these digitally edited versions of our lives on um, social media to make ourselves feel better in comparison to others. And so you say, well, the answer is, well, you shouldn't care what others think of you. And so there's, there's some truth to that. But the spirit of the age of our, our age was says, well, then what you need to do to not care so much about what others think of you is to find out who you are. Be yourself. Be yourself. Just be yourself. Right? That's the, that's the wisdom of our age. Be, just be yourself. As if yourself is really awesome. So don't care what others think. Care what you think. Just measure up to your own standards. Just be yourself. So we heal, heal our inferiority complex with a superiority complex, which creates this arrogance within us. But the only real answer is to care about, I care about what God thinks of me. And God says that 1 John 1, 4, um, 18, he says, I'm his child. I have the right to be his child. I know I'm unworthy, but I know what God thinks of me. So I can stop always thinking of myself. The only way to 
see this is to have John's view of Jesus. So let's look at John's view of Jesus. The only way you can forget yourself, to not just consider always how you are, how you're measuring up in relation to others, and not just focusing on yourself and your own standards, is to look away from yourself and look to Christ. As the Puritans say, for every one look to yourself, look to Christ ten times. So John's view of Jesus. John gives us his testimony, right? He gives us a, a witness testimony. He says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except the one who sent me, that's God, to baptize with water, told me. God told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So John's this is John's witness to us. He's saying, this is what I saw. I saw the sign fulfilled that he is the Son of God. And John says, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Probably the mo one of the most profound verses in all of the scripture. I could probably spend all morning looking at verse 29. He says, look, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes the sin away the sin of the world. John's view of Jesus is that he's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God, and he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What does it mean to be the Lamb of God? Well, first of all, it means that he's a substitute. He's a substitute. The Lamb in the Old Testament is always a substitute. He's always taking the place, always dying the death that people should have died. And so whether it's Abraham and Isaac, and God tests Abraham and says, Offer your son Isaac, your only son, the son whom you love. Offer him as a sacrifice to me. And, they're, and, and so they're going, and they're going up to Mount Moriah. And Isaac on the way says, Dad, what are we doing? We've got wood, and we've got fire. We've got everything for a sacrifice except a lamb. And Abraham says to Isaac, God himself will provide a lamb. God's going to provide a lamb. I trust it. And we know the you know the story that, that, that God indeed, Abraham's ready to offer up his son, but God provides the lamb. He's saying, God's saying, if God Abraham's telling his son, if God provides a lamb, you won't have to die, Isaac. If God provides a lamb, you won't have to die. Or we go to in Egypt, and the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, and God is sending these, the plagues. And the last plague, before um, Pharaoh finally lets the people go, right, is the, is the angel of death is coming. And he's going to come to every home in Egypt on this night. And the firstborn son will die in each and every home unless the people of Israel painted the blood of a lamb over the doorposts of the home. It's God saying, if a lamb is killed, you won't have to die. And John gets it. John here is understanding it. He's saying, this is the lamb of God. He's not just a lamb. He's the lamb of God, the one and the only lamb of God. Because he's the son of God, He's also the Lamb of God. And so the reason our kids didn't die in Egypt isn't because of the cute, furry little animal that, that died in our place. It's because God himself offered up his one and only son, the son whom he loved, and provided a lamb for us. And so um, John's getting it. He's saying, here's the substitute. Here's my substitute. Here's the reason I can know I'm a dearly loved child of God is because he has taken my place. His death is my death in place of my death. And he's a lamb. He's a voluntary 
substitute. Isaiah said that of Jesus prophesying, he says he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Lambs don't put up a fight. He's going voluntarily. Jesus volunteer, voluntarily went. No one forced him into it. And you know what? Our self-pity, our inferiority complex, and our superiority complex, our self-pity and our arrogance melt in the face of death. When we see a substitute for us, our self-pity can, can melt away. Right? We don't have to measure up to others. This is backwards. And we don't have to think about ourselves and, and, and feel arrogant and feel proud and feel uh, condescending towards others because we took the death of the Son of God to die for me. And he was glad to do it. He was glad to do it. He voluntarily did it for me. So our inferiority and superiority can both melt in the face of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John has this really unique character. John has this view of himself that he's unworthy, that the only thing that matters about me, about who I am, is how I relate to Jesus. That's the thing that matters most about me, is how I relate to Jesus. My identity, my self-awareness is so wrapped up in Jesus that that's all that matters. And because my identity is so wrapped up in Jesus, because um, the, only, the way in which I think of myself is in relation to him, and because I know he's the Lamb of God and the Son of God, I can witness. And, I, and so look, what is John's character? What's John known as? John's incredibly bold, right? If you, this morning's readings in our daily readings is Luke chapter 3. And John was this incredibly bold person who didn't care about what others thought. People came to him and he says, brood of vipers. He went to Herod the king, the tetrarch, and said, your wife shouldn't, it's your brother's wife, you shouldn't be with her. He's thrown in prison for it. We know eventually loses his head. He's this incredibly bold and courageous and brave man who's incredibly attractive to people. We know that he's incredibly humble. We know it later in John chapter 3, he says, he, speaking of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. I want him to become most prominent, and I can, I can become less prominent. We know he's incredibly approachable and attractive. And so John says, don't look at me. It's not about my lifestyle. It's not about who I am. It's all about Jesus. And it's the same way for us in our witness. I pray that our uh, our communal witness and our communal lifestyle, individually and communally, corporately, that our lifestyle is attractive, that we are generous, that we do have a peace that passes understanding in the midst of difficulty and suffering and sorrow, that we do have a hope that, that is an anchor for our souls, that we, that we do um, live a life of, of morality, of ethics, that our, our lifestyle of, of commitment and devotion and faithfulness is attractive and our generosity and our, and our commitment to the poor and the oppressed in this world, that all of that together is attractive to this world. But as this world gets to know us, our witness would be, don't just try to adopt our lifestyle. Don't just adopt our morality. Don't adopt, adopt our social program. Come to Jesus. F have faith in the Lamb of God. Have faith in the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. And He will produce this fruit. He will produce this change. He'll produce these effects in you from the inside out. It's not a social program. It's not a lifestyle. It's devotion. It's faith in Jesus that creates all of it. 
And so John's example is that he's this incredibly bold, this incredibly attractive, this incredibly approachable man. And yet he continually says, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. Look to Jesus. Paul says the same thing. The Apostle Paul, the great preacher of the early church, and I close with this. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For we do not preach ourselves. We don't proclaim ourselves. We do not preach ourselves. We don't say, look at me, look how great we are. We do not, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus is Lord. We don't proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus. May it be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would that be our witness? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at how great a Lord Jesus is. Look at how great a Savior Jesus is. Look how he's the Son of God. Look how he's the Lamb of God. And so, Father, would you come by your Spirit and turn us into these kind of witnesses, people who are becoming more generous and compassionate, merciful and faithful in our relationships with one another, with this world, that would be a, a people of love and grace and compassion and generosity. Lord, that our witness would be not be ourselves, but our witness would be Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He's the one that we should pay attention to. He is who it is all about. So, Lord, produce that humility in us, that, that ability to not look so much at ourselves, to not just compare ourselves to others, but to really, truly and sincerely care about what you think of us. So that in Jesus, the Lamb of God, we can know that you have taken away all of our sins, and so you're well pleased with us. That we can know that you love us, that you're committed to us, that you're faithful to us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you never change, that your love never ends, that your faithfulness continues to all generations, that you will provide for us, that you, you will lavish your affection and your love upon us in unceasing and unending and to overflowing so, Father, would you fill us with great love for Jesus. Fill us with your love. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.